And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law on this Friday. On this episode, we're going to dig into what teams might be learning from this postseason. Some odd twists and turns that maybe have led to some well, discoveries or at least maybe confirmed some things that we may have been concerned about in the past. We'll talk about what this winter might look like for the Cardinals in the wake of the dismissal of manager Mike Schilt and how that team really did exceed expectations over the course of 2021. We'll discuss the Giants and how well positioned they are for 2022 and beyond. And we'll dig into a few more players that Keith saw during his trip to Arizona for the Arizona Fall League last week. But Keith, Let's start with the playoffs, which have been a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, as we record this midday Thursday, it's a travel day in the ALCS. Houston going back home with a 3-2 lead. The Dodgers facing elimination on Thursday nights. They could be eliminated by the time people get to hear this podcast on Friday. And I think one main thing that is a surprise to me, at least, is that teams are continually pushing starters on their throw day to shorten up their bullpen. And I think I would have expected there to be a downside to it. And I think we saw it kind of on full display with Julio Urias Wednesday against Atlanta. That was clearly Urias at something well below 100%, right? I think it was the fourth time he'd pitched in the span of about 13 days. So maybe it was more of the the cumulative effect of all of those appearances, not necessarily one throw day appearance and then a start. But do you think this is something that teams are, are learning? There's more of a downside to using your pitching this way in the postseason the further into the playoffs you go. I, I don't know. I've seen that take a few times, and I'm not going to say it's – I don't know that it's right or wrong. Uh, it feels reactive, though, that we're dealing off of a pretty small sample, just a like a very limited number of instances of teams using starters in that fashion. You know, the argument I've always heard in baseball terms was kind of like, well, this is a throw day anyway. So, you know, throw day for those starters. So it shouldn't be that big of a deal to work them in. And so I'm not really sure why we're changing our look at that, why we're changing our view on that based on such a small sample um, of just a couple of guys not looking good in this particular uh, postseason. I just, I again, I don't know. I feel like we need way more data to draw a conclusion like that. Yeah, I think part of what makes this so tricky is we don't see it done in the regular season. But then a part of me says, well, if you're going to do this in the postseason, maybe you should do it once in a while during the regular season. Maybe you should be more trained and conditioned for these types of, of outings. And maybe that would actually be a better way to get through the postseason. It's less of a surprise, less of a an extra toll on a pitcher's arm, if it even is a toll at all. I mean, I, I guess that's the, the other stark contrast is how pitching is managed in October versus how it's managed throughout the rest of the season 
are we preparing pitchers in the best way possible for the way things play out this time of year? Again, I don't know the answer to that. If pitchers feel like throwing, coming in and throwing an inning in relief is just the same as kind of having a throw day, then is it that big of a difference? It's a question for a pitcher, right? To me, that is, those of us on the outside who are trying to answer this are probably really poorly equipped to answer it. I think that that is, um, it, it, only a pitcher could really, only a series of pitchers probably could adequately address that is the way that they're handled during the season where they are throwing on certain days between starts. Is that similar enough? I mean, there was an interview with Max Scherzer during the game last night where he kind of made it sound like it wasn't that huge of a difference. It was a difference, but he made it seem like it was not a huge difference to pitch in relief versus starting. And I would like to hear that from more pitchers before jumping to a conclusion. It's what I, I my sense in the last few days. I feel like it has just happened in the last two or three days. It's like, oh, this is a bad idea. Can't use starters or relievers anymore. It's like, God, wait, would, we would never do this off three days in July. Right. So why are we all jumping to draw this conclusion now? I don't, but like I said, I don't know. And it sound, it immediately strikes me as wrong, right? It makes me skeptical, which is not the same as saying I think that it is incorrect, but we need more info than this. As far as any other like broader takeaways from the postseason so far, if there's anything else teams are, are realizing about how they can more effectively build rosters for this time of year, anything that's really caught your eye that is just maybe something teams are taking away from what's played out on the field over these last few weeks? No, because for the same reason, though, right? I wouldn't draw conclusions from, God, how many games is it? I don't know. What have we played, 25 games or so? Yeah, about that. Um, in the postseason, so that's a tiny sample. Um, it's not even two days worth from the regular season. So no, I I'd be a little reluctant to draw any kind of conclusion from that. I think that um, I think that doing so. I mean, this is baseball is very reactive anyway, right? That is, um, they love to, you know, oh, this is the this is the thing people are complaining about right now. Let's let's jump and try to change everything for that, and then create six new problems through the solution. Whereas to me, it's, yeah, I mean, you're kind of seeing this. These are the best teams in baseball right now. It's arguably four of the, I don't know, six or so best teams advanced to the LCSs. The quality of baseball has been really high in spots. We've seen some bad umpiring. That's not new. <laughs> so that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Um, so, yeah, I just, there's been some really good stuff to enjoy. Two nights ago, not that we're doing this on Thursday. So Tuesday night was awesome. Last night was not. I would not. Awesome is not a word I would use to describe the Wednesday night action, but that's fine. You're going to get a few clunkers now and then. Yeah, and even sometimes blowouts can be exciting in the right way, right? If you have a couple grand slams, for example, that can that can be pretty fun to have the early explosion of offense like that. That sure. can be good. Uh, but look, this has been this has been a, a generally, I think, good postseason so far. Mm -hmm. We'll see what happens in the remaining time that we have. The calls for the automated strike zone picked up again, and and understandably so. We we're very we're very granularly focused this time of year, as people can kind of tell with the type of conversation we're having right now. But Nathan Evaldi, that was strike three to Jason Castro, and that ended up being a huge, huge call. And that also kind of pushes us into the oh, Evaldi threw more than they wanted him to, maybe in that spot. And now we'll see what happens there. But more importantly, to get calls like this right. I don't think you can go all the way to the automated strike zone. You wrote about this. They're testing it in the fall league. They've been testing it now for a couple of years. 
it's not perfect for one. So if you can't pivot to the automated strike zone just yet, how do you fix the problem that we saw unfold earlier this week? Because you cannot have borderline calls come down to just one one singular person like this. This can't be the way we decide these calls. We had two bad calls that night, right? We had the one that was Bueller struck out Jock Peterson. Yep. Right? That was worse to me. Actually, the one everyone's complaining about on Twitter, the Diaz call with Ivaldi, was it, it's not even close to me. The Bueller, the Bueller pitch was way clearer of a strike. That call on the border to um, the, the Evaldi pitch, I'm blanking on who was at the plate at the time. That call, automated strike zones are probably going to miss that call a decent amount of the time too because it was right on the edge. Even the graphics that were getting shared online, if you think those are accurate, it was right on the line. Yeah. That call is going to get missed. You know, an automated system might miss that as much as 50% of the time. We should not be surprised. Um, it's the one Bueller through. I mean, that was right in the strike zone, right? That was ridiculous. So here, we can talk about what I wrote. I don't want to hijack this and, and just start talking about my own column. But one thing is, Laz Diaz was the one behind the plate in the that Red Sox-Astros game. He's just not good at calling balls and strikes. What if... Hold on to your seat here. I'm going to make a crazy suggestion. But what if we rewarded the umpires who are best at calling balls and strikes over the course of a regular season with the home plate assignments in the postseason? I know that's pretty radical here. (laughs) But maybe we should find the guys who are good at the job and then give them the job when it's higher profile. I I don't know. I mean, that, that might be too much. Yeah, I would settle for that if we can't do anything else at all and we're worried about, oh, well, if we have challenges on called strikes, that's going to make the game take even longer. But we're already at the point where plenty of playoff games take four hours. So yeah. if we're going to spend four hours on this, we're going to use this to decide who the best team in baseball is any given season. Let's just get it right. Let's take the extra 90 seconds a couple times a game and make sure that critical calls are actually correct. It could be simple. Mm-hmm. It could be you can challenge two called strikes over the course of a nine-inning game. If you're right on both, you get a third. Done. Yeah. Simple. Real easy. Right? Then you can use the extra person in the booth to just relay the information down real quickly. You could run the automated strike zone in the background the entire time and base it off of that. This is These are all solvable problems. And I, I think... I hope that we're at the point where there's enough experimentation happening where at least we get some kind of hybrid model that works better than we have right now. But I would 100% settle for these are the umpires who were the best at calling balls and strikes during the regular season. Maybe it's four in total. You alternate days. You know, That way it's not the same umpire every single game. But I'd be fine with two home plate umpires for an entire series, just alternating games. That'd be, that would work for me. Yeah, humans aren't going to be good as, as good as the automated system. But at the same time, humans are not all the same, right? We know certain humans are better at calling balls and strikes than others. And so, you know, shame on us if we don't take advantage of that. What, what is the purpose of collecting that data if we're not actually going to use it for anything? So I would say um, that we absolutely should select our humans for our human umpires for the postseason based on the merits, based on their, make it a meritocracy, based on their performance. It's performance-based. Like we can't really, you know, Major League Baseball has been pretty reluctant actually to do too much in terms of, uh, you know, promoting or punishing umpires based on in-game performance. But here's one thing they could do. You want to work the postseason, you want to work home plate in the postseason, well, do a better job of calling balls and strikes. 
Yeah, and I think one thing that's been pretty enlightening is the Ump Scorecard's Twitter account. You can see how the established zone, the shape of the established strike zone by a human umpire, it doesn't at all mm-hmm. really resemble the rectangle that you see as the overlay when you watch a game on TV. The, the, the shape is always kind of this funky polygon, and sometimes it cuts in on a corner, sometimes it comes down a little low. Every umpire is a little bit different in that regard, and maybe the, the pitcher on the mound probably has some sort of influence on what exactly that looks like, where they're attacking hitters, and that sort of that plays into things too. I think being an umpire is a miserably difficult job. I know exactly zero people who have said, you know, I'd like to go be an umpire or an official of any kind doing anything because you are mm-hmm. constantly getting a massive amount of scrutiny because everyone oh, yeah. everyone hates you regardless of, of what you do all the time. Make one mistake. You could make a hundred good calls, micro good calls in a game, make one mistake. Everyone remembers one mistake. It's still within that group, within the group of people who are kind enough to even dedicate their lives to this craft there are people who are better at the job than other. At least, at least get those people behind the plate at the most critical times if you're not going to use tech in some kind of hybrid sort of fashion. Because I think that's the more likely application for it at the big league level. Yep. Let's talk about a few teams that have been bounced from the playoffs. We did that last week as well with the Rays, the Brewers, and the White Sox. I think when we spoke, the Cardinals' future was still TBD. Mike Schilt was let go. Are you surprised that Mike Schilt is actually out as the manager? And, and are you where are you on the the broader like how how valuable is a manager really? Because I think that that debate is starting to come back into the spotlight a little bit as far as things that Alex Cora has done in this postseason and just mm-hmm. kind of figuring out like can we get three or four wins out of a good manager? Can we get more than that? Do we get less? Where do you kind of fall on on that conversation? Well, in Schilt's case, it seems like there was a real issue of he and. Uh, Mozeliak weren't on the same page in terms of the use of analytics. And guess what? The boss wins that one. Mm-hmm. Also, how are you a manager in 2021 and you're, you don't want to work with the analytics department? What, how is that even a thing? It's very strange you'd get to that spot in the first place because even teams that are behind, analytically speaking, are still using data, still yes. using information. So that seems like a pretty basic prerequisite for being in the dugout, really, in any capacity. Yeah, I would think so, right? I mean, that is just, yeah. To me, I thought that was, um, hey, you're going to lose that battle. Sorry. Yeah, just sorry. It's de- I mean, that's shame on Schilt for, hey, you, you want to keep that job, one of the most coveted jobs in baseball. Maybe you should just fulfill the basic requirements, which is working with the R&D department. And the Cardinals have lived by their R&D department for like 10 years now. It's made them pretty good. It's part of why they draft well. It's part of why they develop well. That stuff is integrated throughout that organization. So maybe don't be a stubborn old man. I mean, that's really just what it read. I could not believe that's why you got fired. That's preventable. Yeah. It's not like you got fired because, you know, three of your five scheduled starting pitchers got hurt and you had a horrible team, had a horrible season as a result. It wasn't that. I was very surprised to see that. I, you know, that's extremely foolish of Schilt. As for your question about how valuable a manager is, I've always had the uh, belief that a good manager might get you I don't know, three or four more wins over the course of a season through some tactical stuff and through uh, maybe modest developmental gains. A bad manager can cost you a lot more than that because he can hurt you for a long time, right? He can end up hurting you, um, causing you to, causing players to not develop by misplaying them, playing them in the wrong places, playing them in the wrong positions, using them inconsistently, 
not presenting them with appropriate challenges, not growing them. Like a good, a bad manager can do all kinds of things. So I really do not understand. Um, uh, sorry, really do understand when a team lets a guy go in that situation. Don't understand why teams, especially bad teams uh, or teams that are still rebuilding, would choose not to have a more developmental manager. To me, that is particularly shocking when a team uh, says, you know, if you're a bad team and you're making a managerial change, you should, and you're, you expect to integrate a lot of um, young players. Why on earth would you not try to integrate as many, uh, sorry, get a manager who's, who's better at integrating young players who has some kind of track record of development when it comes to young players? Yeah, this is the St. Louis team that's in a pretty interesting spot this offseason. Their Pythagorean win total was like 85, by the way. So they exceeded expectations with that late surge in September. And I think the way the division is built right now, we've talked about the NL Central. One thing that makes things appealing, if you're a Brewers fan right now, it seems like it's Brewers, Cardinals, maybe the Reds, and you get the Cubs and Pirates playing for some time in the future. This is an old core that has some young talent emerging. The Tyler O'Neill breakout was obviously a big step in the right direction, getting him to play at that level. We'll see what they get from him in 2022. Maybe it's 90% of what they got from him this season, but even that would be, I think, a pretty big success. You look at Dylan Carlson as a guy that we've talked about. I think there's easily another level or two still with him, a healthy Jack Flaherty. Just internally, there's a few things to like more about the Cardinals going into 2022, and that assumes that they're probably also going to make some kind of adjustment to this roster, likely adding some more pitching because that core of starters behind Flaherty and Adam Wainwright was amazing this year. You can't bank on that happening again. Miles Michaelis has had all sorts of difficulties staying healthy. They really need to fortify that group of starting pitchers if they're going to make a run and be a serious playoff contender again next season. Yeah, and there is quite a bit of starting pitching available in free agency this winter. Now, whether they'll spend for that, I don't know. Um, that will be the, you know, who knows what the, I mean, the Cardinals have not been unwilling to spend, but they do, um, they're generally not going to be the top bidder for premium free agents. I'd be surprised, um, if they ended up at the top of the market, but there's also some quite a bit of surplus out there, actually. Like, I think that it's a really strong free agent class in general, and we may have some supply-demand imbalances that could allow a team like St. Louis, depending on what they're looking for, to come in and do reasonably well, to come in and get a player at, you know, maybe they still get what they're actually worth, but they don't have to pay the premium to a player's expected value that you do when you're going after a guy at the top of the market, like, for example, a Carlos Correa, uh, who I think is the best guy in the market, but he will he may be actually overpaid relative to his expected worth. He's going to, he's been underpaid his whole career. So it's not a criticism of him, but I could see that happening. Maybe that works well for a club like the Cardinals. It's willing to be aggressive, but of course they're not likely to match say the Yankees or the Dodgers when it comes to spending big on some of the premium free agents, uh, even just to, even if we're just specifically looking at the pitching side. Yeah. I mean, I could see them being in maybe on Robbie Ray as a, a multi-year pitcher. We've talked about mm -hmm. him being someone who's going to cash in in a big way this offseason. You could go with Ray and maybe go with one of the one to two year free agent pitchers in that second group. Uh, one guy that I think is kind of interesting as a, a bargain free agent target is Andrew Heaney. It's a bad year for him this year. Obviously mm -hmm. got DFA at the end of the season by the Yankees, had a major home run issue throughout the year. But I know a lot of people are going to go chase Eduardo Rodriguez and they're going to want to go get the, the shiny toys coming out of the postseason. For me, if I'm a team in need of pitching, Heaney makes a lot of sense. The K's have always been there. He doesn't walk a lot of guys. 
you get them into a more pitcher-friendly environment. St. Louis certainly is one of those, especially. You can probably fix some of the home run issues we've seen from him at various points. It wasn't just 2021 where he struggled with the long ball. That, to me, looks like a sweet spot for sort of a, a buy-low pitcher in free agency, be that for the Cardinals or for other teams looking to round out a rotation. Yeah, I actually, it's funny. I have my, um, I've started doing my free agent rankings. I've listed a bunch of these guys. He is, he was somebody who was on the outside, depends on how many guys I rank, right? But as I was looking at a top 40, he was probably going to be on the outside, but somebody I'd included because really if he's not so Homer prone, he's pretty interesting, right? He's definitely one of those guys where if you think you have the right pitching coach, it's a, we can fix this guy. We can make this guy better. That's what I think he is. Yeah, I think we'll we'll know a lot about uh, what this 2022 is going to look like, depending on where he goes. Like he's one of those quick to sign, short term free agents. You you know there was demand, right? Like there was someone that was like, yeah, we see this guy, and we're going to fix him. I think it was Drew Smiley last year who was one of mm-hmm. those guys that signed with Atlanta, and two years ago, oh, I'm trying to remember who it was. There's always a pitcher like I think Charlie Morton might have been that guy a couple of years ago. Where mm-hmm. holy cow, this guy signed like three days after free agency opened up. Clearly the team saw something. They saw something. Well, that was the year he'd had the four starts for Philadelphia and blew out his ACL trying to field a ball. But in those four starts, he looked like a completely different guy. Yeah. So sometimes those fast movers in free agency, they kind of tips you off to how much a team actually likes a player. They didn't want to wait around and see what was going to happen because they, they felt like this was the perfect fit. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Talk about the Giants for a bit. Uh, I think there are some people out there who'd say, okay, this team had no business winning this many games this year. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a crash coming. Ordinarily, sure, that would make a lot of sense, but they have a good young core getting close to contributing to kind of supplement and eventually replace some of the the old Renaissance players that brought them back to the postseason this year. So how well positioned are the Giants for 2022? I don't think the timing works out that well. I think that that young core that you're talking about, if it turns out to be what we think it could be, um, they're not as clear. Yeah, they're not that. That doesn't work out, right? Posey, Longoria, Crawford, et cetera. The big leaguer. These guys are older and not super likely to hold their value. Uh, yeah, maybe they Maybe they do it again next year, but don't you have to bet on some regression from each of them, just given their age, the unlikeliness of the performances this year? I'm not saying they'll just turn into pumpkins, but maybe they take enough of a step back next year, and then the year after that, maybe even a little bit more so, just because they're getting older, just because of age. Well, then who is stepping in? Who's coming in from the minors? And are those guys ready to contribute right away? I don't think so. 
I like I like the Giants farm system quite a bit. I don't think these guys are as close as they would need to be to have some kind of seamless transition to the next wave. Yeah, so maybe it's not from from A to B with the current core to the young core, but they also are the kind of team that can spend money to fix flaws and to, to paper over cracks. So they could yeah. be pretty aggressive in free agency, make another run at it with the older core, and then bring in that new core you know, two or three years from now as opposed to second half of 2022. And what's that rotation, by the way, right? They lose Gossman, they lose Di Sclafani, right? That's so, a huge question is what are they going to do to fill out the rest of that group? Because I would say of the the prospects they have, a lot of the guys that are closer or at least closer to being the impact sides of players, they're, they're position players, right? It's not necessarily the pitching side where they're coming up with a bunch of guys that are even a year plus away. Like that's that right. to me is where there's a little bit of a, an imbalance in how they're built right now. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually hoping to see Seth Corey out in the fall league and he was mysteriously scratched from a start on Saturday. I think he ended up pitching on Tuesday, who knows, maybe it was just miscommunication, but whatever it was, it was, uh, you know, he was supposed to be one of their best pitching prospects. And it is, you know, he had a horrible year this year, right? He was one of the leaders in uh, walks in the minor leagues this year. So, yeah, I don't know. I have a, I have, again, I like the Giants system. I think the timing doesn't work. And I don't know that, you know, the, the argument the Giants had no business being as good as they were this year. Yes and no, right? None of us predicted them to be this good, but then you actually look at the performances and you look at the you look at the underlying stats behind their uh, one loss record. Yeah, actually they played that well, right? That that was their. It's not like this was one of those um, Buck Showalter Orioles teams that you know yeah, the one year where they barely outscored their opponents, but ended up winning 90 plus games it's not one of those where you say this isn't sustainable come on this team was just extremely fortunate the giants team wasn't was not like that and i say that as somebody who was off on their win total by like 35 wins (laughs) so that was just you know i didn't obviously there were some changes to the hitters it's fine but hey they they played up to their record um but i just can't You've got to forecast regression from all those mid-30s hitters going forward. And then the flip side is who's who's improving, who's coming in, who's improving, what's changing. They're not there, not from the farm system. They'd have to go external. Yeah, it, it just kind of feels like they got every last ounce of toothpaste out of the tube with the roster in 2021. Mm-hmm. And part of that, I think, was also not overexposing players. It was letting guys have days off. It was platooning. It was using the AAA depth effectively, shuttling guys up and down, right? I mean, you look at the the plate appearance totals on this team. Brandon Crawford led them at 549. Mike Yastrzemski, I think, was the only other position player to get over 500 at 532. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of 300 and 400 plate appearance guys. And maybe part of that is, is how you can keep guys in their mid-30s more productive. They're not as worn down. That's mm-hmm. maybe part of it. But yes, can you... Can you bank on everybody who stepped up this year holding these new levels, even if you fully buy into what the Giants do as an organization? And I think I generally do like believe in what they're trying oh, yeah. to pull off. It, even with that, they're going to take a step back. So then it comes down to how much they spend in free agency and how they, they fix their flaws in the rotation. You're right. With uh, Logan Webb's obviously going to be there for a while, but are they going to re-sign Gossman? Should they re-sign Gossman? Would you want to bring him back on a three- or four-year deal at... at 20 million a year? I would, without hesitation. I mean, I think it's legit. I think the biggest thing was he had to get away from the coaching staff 
Um, again, back to Showalter. I don't know why it's become the Buck Showalter show, but <laughs> the reality is Showalter and his staff messed him up. And he had to get away to an environment where they would just say, hey, you are a fastball splitter guy. Stand where you want on the rubber. Work with those two pitches primarily. Oh, guess what? He takes off. Borderline Cy Young contender type. So I, you know, he had to have this. Um, so I believe it. I absolutely believe it. I would certainly invest in him for the long term. I think he's one of the better free agent starters available this winter, too. That said, they sign him. They have Webb. If they sign him, maybe they're not signing Di Sclafani. What's the rest of the rotation look like? And as much as I love what they've done on the hitting side, can they just continue to take guys off the scrap heap and get 300 good at-bats out of them? I mean, at some point, they're going to try that. It's not going to work. It's worked actually reasonably well so far. But I think it's also fair to say it's not going to work every single time. So you'd bring back Gossman, and you're probably looking to fill at least two spots in the rotation with some of the, the bargain free agents, another place where Andrew Heaney could go. You want to put Andrew Heaney on the Giants? Yeah, I'm buying into that bounce back for sure. Again, another pitcher-friendly environment. Totally makes sense. Good organization. They do a lot of things really well. What else could they do in free agency? Do you see them bringing back Chris Bryant? I mean, I think that they seem to value players that move around as much as Bryant does. Even if Bryant's not even an average defender at all the positions he plays, that type of versatility is increasingly valued, it seems, in the game right now. Having guys that can play corners and even up the middle a little bit. I mean, Chris Bryant, center field, sure, you're not doing that long term. In a pinch, though, it seems to work. Is he somebody you want to bring back and, and keep as part of your current core? Do I? Yes. Again, player I would gladly invest in for the long term. I don't know that he's the ideal fit for them. I think they're going to have ten- one. I think they can probably fill the spots he's likely to play. If you're going to play this, uh, we're going to you know, take some underappreciated, undervalued, underdeveloped players from other organizations, or we're going to get the last thing out of them. Then you you could probably fill the spots he's most likely to play. If you're going to invest in guys as a club like that, you're probably thinking middle of the diamond, high-end starters. That's where you put your resources. We can fill at the other spots. Now, they're fortunate in that probably catcher short, maybe third. They're just covered for next year. But still, I would say, unless you, you know, Chris Bryant's not really a center fielder, right? If Chris Bryant were a really good center fielder, I would say yes. Um I think that's probably one they're better off letting go. They would actually be best off, I think. It all depends on what the price is and what their actual budget is, which we don't know. But if they went and invested in both Gossman and DiSclefani or comparable starters from outside the organization, if they did that and let Bryant go, figuring our offense is good and we can probably patch slash someone comes up during the season and can fill some of those at-bats for us. Um, Brandon Belt's leaving too, right? He's also a free agent. Yeah. So that's another that's another hit. Uh, but figuring that they can fix that rather than look, if they don't keep both of those starters, arguably they are up against it uh, in terms of the rotation, in terms of run prevention. Yeah, I think a, a lot of what they do this offseason determines how much more someone like Lamont Wade Jr. ends up playing. Like he he was another one of those guys, just under four hundred plate appearances. If you if you find value in free agency, then he doesn't have a spot to call his own. If you don't, maybe he gets a run where he's an everyday player, maybe between two spots. But it all kind of depends on how the pieces fit together. And I think they they have shown us that they are willing to be a little creative with that roster construction. Also, I, I think a lot of those guys, I love what they do. I think their philosophy is very much, hey, there is such a thing as a guy who's better used for, well, not Wade, 381 plate appearances. 
that's a guy who's going to be if he has 550 play appearances is he no more valuable is he even less valuable does he get exposed can you mix and match those guys to the point where you're getting more total value by using a lot of those guys for you know essentially as part-time players i think that's their philosophy and you sort of slot those guys against the right opponents uh, to get to increase the possible it's not just platoon splits i think they're doing more than that and that's great but that said, you know, can you, if you don't get that big free agent you're talking about, do you end up losing value from trying to play Lamont Wade and Darren Ruff and Mike Yastrzemski more? Yeah, I think you probably do. I think you probably are worse off after that. I think that formula works best when guys like that are used in, in limited fashion. I think we saw a lot of those guys this year. I think a lot of teams have caught on to this idea that you can use players in that fashion. And it's probably also better for them financially, better for teams financially, because it's real tough to go to arbitration when you've got 380 plate appearances versus 550, uh, which is not to defend it. I'm just stating a fact. <laughs> um, but I think that that Giants philosophy is, it's great to a point. And ultimately, you, you kind of can't build the whole plane out of that. So if Posey and Crawford take steps backwards this year, which next year, which I think they will, then um, then they're in trouble. Then they then they would need to have, you know, someone else has to come and step up. And Joey Bart and Marco Luciano and Patrick Bailey, I don't think so. Not next year. Eventually, yes, not next year. Yeah, long term. Is Bart a giant or do you think he's someone that maybe gets traded this winter? You know, I, I it's funny. I have this sort of personal philosophy where I do not – um, yeah, I was out of fall league. Patrick Bailey was out there. And my rule is don't really evaluate catchers out in fall league because they're exhausted. Now it said Patrick Bailey looked really bad in fall <laughs> league. So I'm going to pretend I didn't see that. But yeah, I could see them saying Bart's a bit flawed as a hitter. Bart's a better catcher. He's a really good defensive catcher. Maybe the better answer is you got to trade one of those two guys, right? Those two guys cannot possibly be um, you can't keep them both in the long term because you're essentially wasting someone's value, right? And not to mention, they're both catchers. Let them both be everyday catchers somewhere. You don't want to bury one of them as a backup for a while and waste part of his career and get less value there. And then um, when you could be using him to treat, you could be trading one of them, either of them, to go get something else you need. Maybe you swap one of them and you get the corner bat. You get the number three starter. Um I don't know who that would be. I haven't really started to look at the potential trade market, but I would guess if you put a Barter or a Bailey out there, yeah, you'd probably get some interest. You'd probably be able to get those guys could headline a package for a good number three team controlled starter. Yeah, definitely seems to make sense. Uh, Long term, Bart, is he kind of like a, a downside version, like a Mike Zanino? Is that sort of like a if things don't go perfectly, yeah. like he's Mike Zanino, if things go well, he's better than that? Yes, I could see that. I could absolutely see that. Um, I think he's better than Zanino. I think there's more hit. There's more patience there. That's not nothing. Um, I could see that happening for sure. Now, of course, Mike Zanino was extremely valuable this year. I think Bart has more upside than that. It's just he's not going to hit for a lot of average. And that's the one thing that's kind of always – I've always had that concern in him going back to college. I think what you've seen from him so far in pro ball says that's, that's what he is. There's big power. He can really catch. He can throw. Oh, that's going to be fine. I think he'll take his walks. 
So he might be one of those sort of, which is, I guess, not different from Zanino. Maybe that really, maybe I'm, I'm like talking myself into the comparison here. But isn't that kind of what Zanino is, right? Yeah. Low average, but does a lot of the other things. It was Zanino. And is valuable. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's just very valuable and, and doesn't seem to cash in, like, because the Rays love him. They keep bringing him back on small deals and they're very happy with what they're getting from him. So if, if that's what Bart becomes, that's that's fine. I think maybe it does come down to the hit tool. I think with Zanino, he was pushed through the minors so fast. Like that yes. that kind of to me, I always wonder if like did that change anything with his development and make him less patient? And I, I don't know. I just I always wonder like how much the fast track can have like a long term downside effect on a hitter, especially. Yeah, he needed well, he needed the time. He needed the time in the minors that he didn't get. He just was one of the, you know, be more fair to say, this is a guy who was not as developed, right? He was, um, he was not as ready as your typical college position player product. And that's probably, um, that's, I, I don't know if that, if it was that they believed, um, he was more polished or if this was just, hey, we got to rush him to the majors and show what we are, show that we're we're doing a better job, show that we're really good at developing, drafting and developing. Oh, who knows? It could be any of those things. Is the arc of his career different? Is the arc of Dustin Ackley's career different if mm. those guys get more time in the main minors? Fair question. Yeah, there's a blast from the past. Haven't thought about Dustin Ackley for at least five years now. One of the bigger disappointments. Now, I'm not sure I really thought Dustin Ackley was going to be a superstar. Um, you know, I thought he was probably going to, if, if center field didn't work, I thought he was probably going to end up at first base and that was a problem. And I never thought his defense at second was that good. But God, I thought it, nothing else he'd hit. Yeah. Like just like put the ball in play and hit for some average. That, he didn't even do that. I think that was a pretty con- pretty widely held like consensus. Like bare minimum, he's going to hit two ninety, maybe even flirt three hundred every year. And even if he doesn't have a lot of power, it's going to be a playable bat. And he was really safe. But wow, one of the yeah, one of the bigger disappointments I would say of the last oh. I don't know ten fifteen years now. Yeah, well, that was the draft where okay, not that they were actually going to take him, but Seattle took him second overall, and that was the Mike Trout draft. Oops. Yeah, but at the time. <laughs> Right? Dustin Ackley. Great for Team USA, right? I think great for Team USA. Great on the Cape for a couple weeks before he had the elbow surgery. Raked at Chapel Hill. Great program in the ACC. We've all seen him a trillion times. First, Mike Trout's from where? You want to take a high school kid from Jersey? What? But Jersey, right? Yeah. (laughs) That just, nope. That was, I get it. That seemed really risky. Yeah. So uh, I completely understand teams that were not willing to go there. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? 
The Old Man and the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. So let's talk about the Fall League for a bit. I think when we spoke last week, you'd seen exactly one game. It was a Mackenzie Gore start, so that was pretty exciting. But as you spent more time in the Fall League, uh, who really stood out to you? Who'd you get a look at that uh, made you kind of sit up in your seat and say, yeah, all right, we, we got something here? No, I mean, this this Spencer Torkelson guy, he's okay. Torkelson's okay? I yeah. think he can hit a little bit. I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't want to go on too much of a limb there, but <laughs> I, I, there might be some bat there, I got to say. Yeah, he might hit. Uh, yeah, he might. He looked okay. He really – he hit everything. He really did. Um, he was fun to watch. Um, and Brett Beatty also, he hit – I mean, again, first rounder. I mean, there were a lot of first rounders there. Who were really good. Beatty was really good. Bobby Miller looked electric. It was actually interesting because my notes on him, I didn't see him, right? Pandemic year. Um, he was during his Dodgers first round pick at the end of that year. Most of the guys I talked to thought he was kind of a two-pitch guy and real stiff landing and the deliveries, he can end up in the bullpen. The delivery is much smoother now, and he has legit four pitches. Then I heard from somebody who was like, I saw four pitches from him at Louisville. So it's like, okay, maybe it, you know, pandemic year, right? I'm sure a lot of my notes on players were just not very good or not very complete, but he looked electric. I mean, he might be the next guy. I was thinking Andre Jackson was going to be the next guy in their line of potential top of the rotation prospects, but instead I think I got it. Uh, it might actually have been, um, uh, it might actually be Miller instead. Um, Curtis Mead was really interesting. A, a third baseman in the Rays system was Australian who they got in a trade from the Phillies for Christopher Sanchez. And I don't know what Mead's real ceiling is, but that guy can hit. I mean, he can, I really think he can hit, and he just hit everything. So I would be reasonably surprised if he did not turn into some kind of big leaguer with, you know, with some at least hitting for average with maybe some good doubles power. But there might be more there. He's only 20. He looked really good in out in fall league. You're facing better competition out there. I'm, I was definitely impressed. Um, so, yeah, I had a lot, actually. I thought um, it was good. It was a lot of talent out there this year. Yeah, Bobby Miller, just because the Dodgers need more pitching. They need they need their potential frontline guy. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. – it, it's so frustrating. They, uh, As I've said before, they are the Death Star, but it sounds like looking at your column, there are a few other Dodgers pitchers that, that stood out too, guys that would maybe go earlier if you were re-racking 
this year's draft. Yes. Um, well, like Landon Knack was, um, he was a second rounder last year. I mean, Miller would have gone higher if they'd had a full spring and he looked like this, right? That's the story of the 2020 draft, I think, is going to be, you know, the baseball draft, people love to say it's a crapshoot. That is wrong. People who say that are pretty ignorant of the draft. Baseball draft is not a crapshoot. First rounders have a really good track record. And a lot of stars come out of the first round way more than they do out of later rounds. It's not like it's random. However, the 2020 draft class, in hindsight, is going to look pretty screwed up. It's going to be, well, how did that guy get to that spot? And why was this guy taken in the first round? We had four weeks. Yeah. A lot of high school kids we never saw at all. A lot of the info that I had as a third party uh, is going to turn out to be pretty out of date. So, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate, but that is um, – it's just kind of how it worked out that year. I mean, we're fortunate in that we got a draft at all, and these guys did get out to play a bit. And um, it looks like some of them are developing quite well and are going to get there fast. Like Spencer Torkelson really ought to be on the opening day roster for the um, for the Tigers next year. Now, maybe they'll play a service time game, but he's ready. It's exciting if you're a Tigers fan, having that core mm-hmm. coming up to start to – joining with the young pitching that you've already seen in Detroit now going back to the shortened season. I think the other thing we're going to see from the 2020 class, we're probably going to have these guys that were undrafted with it being a shorter draft that start popping up, especially in the mm-hmm. minor league. I think like next year, we're going to see some pretty interesting 2022 minor league performances. It uh, sounds like teams might be actually providing housing for some minor leaguers. Oh, yeah. That's, that's nice huge. So imagine players like sleeping and not worrying about that and, and being crazy more like more fit and ready to go because they didn't sleep on a floor or they didn't sleep in their car. Like, wow, like that's that's going to unlock something. So that's pretty cool just to finally see that play out for the sake of teams doing the right thing, probably because they've basically been publicly pressured and forced to, but they're finally doing it. Nonetheless, but you're going to have prospects, I think, for the next couple of years kind of emerging from relative nowhere because of what 2020 did, the shorter draft and all those factors. Uh, before we go, Keith, uh, I actually didn't get a chance to listen to your show yet. I'm going to produce it after we record this one. Who is your guest this week on the Keith Law Show? Who was my guest? Do I have a guest this week? Do I have a show? I don't even remember. <laughs> you did a show? No, I had Trevor Strunk, also known as Hegelbon, on Twitter, if you follow him there. He hosts a podcast called No Cartridge, and he has written a book called Story Mode on the intersection of culture and console, as he says. It is a very, I would say, an academic look at video games. Um, I enjoyed it. It's definitely a different sort of read, and basically we just shot the breeze for 40-something minutes about video games and his thoughts on video games and specific some specific games and specific genres of games too and what their import is in the greater scheme of things very cool be sure to check that out if you don't already have a a feed of the keith law show going it's going to be on a like an every other week sort of a different cadence in the off season but of course we Who do knows? Yeah, yes. more like weekly episodes once we get back around to february so be sure to subscribe to that show if you haven't done that already you can hear me on Rates and Barrels. We're doing live weekday streams, 11.30 a.m. Eastern. If you'd like to do the live thing on YouTube, pod versions go up a little after the, after that. So plenty of great content to listen to. And, of course, if you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you should get one 50% off at theathletic.com slash baseball show. On Twitter, he's at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Enjoy the games this weekend.